Pastor with the youth group, we've been working through the uh, book of Joshua uh, this week. Just the beginning of it, really, and I want to come back to some of the truths that we already began to look at in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Joshua because the, the message here, I think, is so rich for us and we don't, we don't want to miss it. You know, sometimes when we, we pray for things, you know, something that we think that is really right for us. You know, it's something, you know, like a life direction or as you get older, maybe a life mate or, you know, a particular career course or course of study that would prepare you for your career. Those kinds of decisions can be big decisions. And, and we will, we would recommend, right, that we pray for, about those things. But sometimes we settle for less than God's best for us, don't we? Uh, and, and we do that because, well, perhaps we get impatient, right? We, we're waiting for God to answer, and He's not doing it in our timetable. And so, boom, we go ahead and make a decision and act. And sometimes we do it because it's, it's a lapse of faith. You know, the Lord has called us to live a life by faith. Faith means that we trust God even though we, we've never seen Him. We've never seen Jesus Christ. We were singing about Him dying on a cross, but none of us saw Him die on that cross, right? That happened 2,000 years ago almost. But we believe it by faith because the Word of God teaches it. And the Word of God teaches us about the character of God, how much He loves us, how much He, he wants to work in each of our lives for good, that we might be fruitful, that we might be useful for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others in our community and ultimately for the glory of God. Now, that is a life that really counts, isn't it? Is that something you want tonight? I want it for you. I want it for myself. I want my life to really count. I don't want to get to the end and look back and say, wow, there were, there were so many decisions I made, Lord. I didn't wait on you. I got ahead of you. Or I didn't trust you like I should that a life of faith would show. And I think that that's the message here that's in the first two chapters of the book of Joshua. First of all, in, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we read about the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, for some of you, if you're not familiar with their Bibles, you, you may not understand who these particular tribes are. But these were they're referred to, I'm just going to refer to them as the two and a half tribes, okay? Because they're often referred to that way. Two and a half, because the half tribe of Manasseh, two and a half of the tribes of the people of Israel decided that, that, that they were going to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They didn't want to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, God had a particular purpose for redeeming Israel. We looked at this a week ago, last Sunday, in Exodus chapter 6, right? He, he brought them out of Egypt because he wanted them to do whatever they wanted. Is that what we read? No, he brought them out of Egypt to do what? He had a particular purpose for them, to take them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And what would they do there? They would be a testimony for him. 
First through the tabernacle, and then ultimately the, the temple, both the first and the second temple. They were there in the land as a testimony to draw peoples all over the earth, from every tribe and nation, to draw all peoples to the true God. That's the purpose he had for them. And the analogy that we've been making is that for us who are believers today, we don't, when we trust in Jesus Christ, he doesn't put us into the nation of Israel, does he? The nation of Israel was was his testimony in the Old Testament, but God did something different after Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day, just as the scripture said, and then later exalted, ascended into heaven where he is now, from where he's going to come back in a future day to this earth. Okay, God has all that in a plan that he reveals in his Bible. And he wants us to know. But not only that, he wants us to participate with him in that plan. Now, to me, that's awesome, isn't it? You know, sometimes we can really feel special or important when we're doing something. I used to like to please my parents. Now, some, some children, you know, don't always feel that way, but that's the way God made me. Not all of my brothers and sisters were that way, but, but I was, and I just, I got great joy out of making my parents happy. And, and, and when I didn't make them happy, it really made my heart sink. You know, it really affected me. Well, I thank the Lord for that because that was a protection for me from a lot of bad decisions and pathways I could have made that a lot of friends of mine did make. And they paid a big price for it. But when I got saved, then Jesus Christ pointed me to my heavenly Father. And I entered into the family of God. Now, it's still part of my family here on earth, right? And I, they're still there in Texas, and I, we get together and that. But it's not the same because my sister just trusted Christ recently, two years ago. But the rest of them, they don't, they don't really care about the Bible. They don't really care about Jesus Christ. They, they're not going to sing about the cross like we just did. It doesn't matter to them. I mean, they're out in the world making money like everybody else, right? They're just trying to make a living and make money and, and enjoy life. You know, that, that's their view. But me... It's different. And if you're a believer here tonight, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope you feel in your heart different in what you want to do and be with your life than before you were saved. I hope something's happened in your heart. That's what we were singing. That's what surrender means. The love that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us on the cross ought to evoke a response from us. Right? If it doesn't, you miss something. You miss something about the story because it ought to affect us deeply. (laughs) He's God. And He took the punishment for your sin and my sin on that cross. He didn't have to do that. He did that because He loved us. And He wants us to love Him back. And most Christians, most born-again Christians do love him back, but not all born-again Christians do. Some born-again Christians just continue being like they were, and, and they want 
the easy life. They, they don't really want to surrender all to him. That we rang demands my heart, my life, my all. But not all Christians feel that way when they're first saved. And not all Christians feel that way after they've been saved for 40 years. Do they? Because it's optional. Love is, is optional, isn't it? When you love somebody, you always make yourself vulnerable to being hurt because they may not love you back. Amen. Right? And, and God did that when he, when, he loved, when he loved us on the cross. There are some people that don't appreciate that love, right? You share the gospel with them. You try to show them in the Bible. And it doesn't affect them. They don't care. And we pray that eventually the Holy Spirit will touch their hearts, right? We continue to pray for them once we've sown the seed and clearly explained the gospel to them. We have that responsibility to do that. And then we have to leave it with God. It's sad. I've known people that I shared the gospel with. I've been a a Christian 32 years. In fact, my spiritual birthday is this Sunday. I'll be 32 years a believer this Sunday. And uh, so there were people I, I shared the gospel with right away after I got saved 32 years ago. And, they, and there still is no response. Some of them I still have contact with, not frequent contact, but I, I know where they are and what they're doing in their lives. And why did the gospel impact me like it did and it didn't impact them? I don't know. But that happens, doesn't it? And so I think what, what the Holy Spirit is telling us here, he links two stories together here at the end of chapter 1 of Joshua, at the beginning of chapter 2. He talks about the, t- the decision of the two and a half tribes at the end of chapter 1, and he talks about a decision to send spies into the land at the beginning of chapter 2. Right? So I want to look at those two things because both those things occurred earlier in the book of Numbers. And in fact, the Holy Spirit connects the two together in the book of Numbers. So the first one, I want to go to uh, Numbers. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, uh, and I wanted to make sure the Bible's got distributed. If you have a Bible, I want you to see this in your own Bible. Because I want you to hold your finger in Numbers chapter 13... But also turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. So Numbers 13, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now in Numbers 13, everybody there? If you don't have a Bible, ask for one. Dave or somebody in back will get you one. I really want you to see this with your own eyes. Because here we see what some people say, well, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Well, I don't believe there are any contradictions in the Bible myself. You will have to decide that for yourself. But I believe the Bible is perfect. That it doesn't contradict itself. It reveals perfectly the mind of God. You know where the contradictions are then. 
in our head. <laughs> we sometimes don't understand it. And that's where study comes in. That's why we study. Thank you, Brother Andres. That's where study comes in, see? So we look in chapter 13 of Numbers, holding your finger in Deuteronomy, because you got I want you to compare both of them. And in chapter 13, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am given to the children of Israel, from each tribe, and so forth. Okay, from this verse, who initiates, whose idea is it to send spies into the land? It looks like it's the Lord's, doesn't it? The Lord spoke to Moses and said, gave a command to send men to spy out the land. Okay, hold your finger here and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And in verse 22, we read, now this is Deuteronomy Moses is recounting the history to the nation right before they cross over into the land. And in verse 22, he says, And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us by the way which we should go up into the cities in which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well, so I took twelve men of your men and sent them out to spy out the land. You see that? So Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, who initiated the idea? The people did, didn't they? The people, it wasn't even Moses' idea. It was the people, according to Deuteronomy chapter 1, who got the idea because, I believe, a lapse of faith. They weren't willing to trust the Lord. The Lord had already promised them he would go in ahead of them. But they said, well, we, our, our faith could use a little bit of help here. We'd like to send some spies out to check things out ahead of time. Just like we do sometimes, right? When, when God is guiding us and we don't want to totally trust him, we say, well, Lord, you know, maybe you can show me what's going to happen. If I make this decision, show me what's going to happen as the result of that decision. <laughs> In other words, we want to know the future. And he doesn't tell us that, does he? Usually. He says, no, trust me. I'm a good God. I make good decisions. And if you trust me, it will work out for good. Amen. So is this a contradiction in the Bible? Numbers 13 says the Lord spoke to Moses. Deuteronomy 1 says the people came up first. Well, I would reconcile these two passages this way. I would say it was the people's idea to send the spies in. They went to Moses. Moses says in verse 23 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1, the plan pleased me well. So the people didn't ask God's Advice first, did they, according to Deuteronomy 1? And even Moses doesn't ask counsel of God first. He says, the plan pleased me well. So I just did it. Right? And then Numbers 13 tells us, once they made that decision, the Lord said, okay, send them. That's how I would reconcile these two passages. So as I see it, the sending of spies into the land, even in the time of Kadesh Barnea, which was way before the time of Joshua chapter 2, 
that again it was the same reason that Joshua does it in chapter 2 that Moses did it in Numbers 13. Now what happened, in, if you're still there in Numbers 13, turn the page, in Numbers 14, we read about the congregation all is discouraged. Because the twelve spies come back and they make their report. And they say, it's a good land, just like God said. But then they said, they discouraged the people and said, but the problem is there were walled cities there and there were. And there were giants and there were. There were men there that were 10, 11, 12 feet tall. Those, those, those would be tall people. They'd be a little intimidating. They'd have to stoop to walk through the doorways in this building, wouldn't they? And, and, and especially if they're armed like Goliath and the other giants were. Trained soldier types. And they said, and they discouraged the people, 10 against 2, right? You remember the vote. So coming back then to Deuteronomy chapter 1, we see then in verse 25 the report. Everybody see this? I want you to see it with your own. Deuteronomy 1.25. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. Moses is reporting this, recording the history again. And they brought back word to us saying, it's a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. He's giving it to us. We don't really have to take it. It's, he's giving it to us, but we do have to... We have responsibilities to appropriate it, to do what he says, to enter the land, to do the things he asks us to do. And, of course, in the book of Joshua, we read that happens, and they do get the land, don't they? Just like God said. Nevertheless, verse 26, Deuteronomy 1, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord our God hates us. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That means really high walls. <laughs> and that was true. Moreover, we've seen the sons of Anakim there. Oh! That's the giants. Anak was a giant. Lived in Hebron. And so then Joshua and Caleb give the encouraging good report. And Moses, verse 29, says, And I said, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, He will fight for you. Now, the, the Bible says in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, that we are in a spiritual warfare now. It's not physical warfare. We're not fighting physical Canaanites, right? That we wrestle not with flesh and blood with people, but we do wrestle with spiritual forces in wicked places. You know, the, the forces of Satan's demonic host. And we are to conquer cities, as it were, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, aren't fleshly, but they're mighty through God, through the pulling down of Stronghold. Well, what's a stronghold? It's a walled city. It's a fortress. Maybe that's a better word. Stronghold. Maybe we, I like the word stronghold. Uh, and it had uh, 
at Masada. You know, David always talked about going down to the stronghold in Engedi, and I think he's probably talking about Masada. It was already, it's a natural fort by itself. It's a mountain that with a flat top that sticks up all by itself, and the walls all the way around it are extremely steep. And, and, and you can go up there. I've been up there several times, up, up what they call a snake trail, but boy, that trail has to snake back and forth because it's so steep. And then they, now they have a gondola that takes people up there. Herod used it as a fortress in, in our Lord's day. It's a natural fortress because you see your, the armies that want to attack you are all around you, but they're down on the ground and you're way up in the air and you can see them. There's no place to hide. And that's what some of these walled cities were like. But they are pictures of spiritual conflict, of thought, ideas, that are evil, that are contrary to the purposes of God. That's what Second Corinthians chapter 10 is teaching us. There are thought patterns that you have and that I have that are contrary to God. And many of them, in fact we could say before we're saved, all of them, we, can't, we couldn't control or subdue. They had dominion over us. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was an alcoholic addiction. Maybe it was a drug addiction. Maybe it was a porn addiction. Maybe, maybe it was a, a problem with continual anger, outbursts of anger that you couldn't control. Maybe it was a problem with a certain fear. You would, you would think about a certain situation and fear would take over and it would literally physically paralyze you. There are people like that. And there are reasons for that fear, usually things that go back to their childhood that, that really affected them, things they saw or things they experienced and brought them into that position of fear. And, and that's a stronghold in their life. Does the gospel have an answer for that? Do we have to just tell them, wow, I, I, sure, hope, I sure hope you're going to get over that when you get older. Is that, is that all we can say to them as Christians? If you're a born-again Christian, I hope that's not what you're telling your friends and people that you come into contact with. I hope you're taking them to the Prince of Peace, to the mighty Savior who can conquer any stronghold. He can make us super overcomers through Him who loved us. Romans chapter 8 tells us. And that there is nothing that we as Christians need to be in bondage or in fear to at all. In the entire universe, including Satan and his hosts, we don't need to be in fear of them. We don't need to be in fear of the darkness. Now, sometimes I go to a place that I'm not familiar with, like the house over there. And, it, and, and at night it gets dark over there. And there are corners and, and nooks and crannies in that house that I haven't inspected <laughs> when the light was on or when the sun was out. And then you're laying there in bed and you're hearing all kinds of strange sounds. That, that you haven't heard before, you know. I mean, and at first I heard something and I realized, well, there's a bush over by the window and it blows in the wind and it, and it sounded like somebody trying to crawl through the window, but it was just a bush blowing. But your imagination can take off on that when you're laying there by yourself, you know. And you all have had that experience too. If you haven't, you will. You'll be in a strange place, maybe. Maybe up at camp sometime for the first time and staying in a cabin in an area where you don't know anybody in the cabin, you don't know anything about the camp, and you don't know what's in those woods right outside the door. But you don't need to worry 
if you know the Lord. See, he's faithful. That's what he promises Joshua. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you as an orphan. I will always be there for you. Trust me. And that's where the life of faith begins, doesn't it? So was the Lord happy with this decision about the spies coming back and causing the people to to really blaspheme God and say the Lord must hate us? Well, he says, yet for all that, verse 32, Deuteronomy 1 you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to, to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by day. And he says, don't forget, you've been in the wilderness already these two years up to the time of Kadesh Barnea, and the Lord has taken care of you. People say, well, it, it is a desert. still is a Sinai Peninsula where they were. But they weren't feeling the heat of it because he put a cloud over them the whole time in the daytime. And then at nighttime, it, got, it gets really dark in the desert. There aren't any street lights. <laughs> but he was a pillar of fire by night. So there, was, there wasn't anything to be afraid of. They had the light on all the time. God had done that for them. And, and so God says, you're responsible. Because I've been there for you already consistently in you have tested me and found me to be faithful. Amen? Have you done that? Have you tested him to see if he's faithful? God's not afraid of us to do that because he is faithful and he will be there for us. And so these people, the Lord heard the sound of their words, verse 34, and he was angry and took an oath saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give your fathers. Whoa. He says, you know what? You're not going in. Now they were already saved. The ones that understood what the Passover lamb meant, right? And trusted in the blood. They were saved. But they weren't going to be fulfilled in service for God, were they? In the place where he wanted to use them. The place of usefulness. They weren't going to enter the land and that's where they were supposed to be. Exodus chapter 6. He says, Surely not one of these men who gave that evil report. Whew. Has God changed? You say, we say, well now we're in the day of grace and he overlooks all of that. Because we're under grace. Well, we are in the day of grace. And he overlooks a lot. He's very long-suffering. He overlooked a lot for them. He was dealing with them according to grace too, don't forget. Read Exodus 34, 6. He's the same. I change not. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Lord says. But he says in verse 36, here's the key. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and he shall see it, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked. Why? And here's the most important statement in the chapter, at the end of verse 36. Read it out loud with me. Because he, everybody see it? The end of verse 36, Numbers, I mean uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36, the end of the verse. Because he holy followed the Lord. What does it mean to wholly follow the Lord then? 
It means to totally trust Him and cast yourself on Him and your future and, and everything about your life to totally trust Him. It means to wholly follow Him. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is one who follows the Master. But this decision doesn't happen the moment you're saved. I believe that the Bible teaches that it's after you're saved that you come to a place where you make a decision about whether you're going to wholly follow the Lord or not. The Bible calls that surrender or Romans 12.1 would call it presenting your body a living sacrifice. Right? Now, Paul is urging Christians in Rome to do that. So here they are, Christians, but they still haven't done that yet, see? And he knows that. He's heard about them. And so he's saying, look, he says, before you're going to find out what your spiritual gift is, before you're going to be of any usefulness to the Lord, there's something you need to do. You need to present yourself a living sacrifice. You you need to be holy Following the Lord, see. You need to make a decision about doing that. And I would imagine in a room this size that there's a good percentage of people that still haven't done that. And it's never too late. And I hope for the young people that you do it soon. Because the sooner you do it, the more fruitful, useful years you're going to live for God, see. In the land, in the place of service that he planned for you before the foundation of the world, let alone before you were born. He had a plan for you. He wants you to be fulfilled in his plan. The question is, do we want it? I want it for me. And I want it for you. And I'm thankful I can say standing right here tonight that I know for this moment in time that I am in the middle of God's plan for me. I am doing exactly what he wants me to do, exactly where he wants me to be doing it. How about you? And if you haven't come to that place, talk to the Lord about it in prayer. So the Lord wants, he's looking for these kind of people. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the words, remember to King Asa, his eye, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And what's he looking for? People whose hearts are fully turned toward him, wholly following the Lord. That's still what he's looking for. So there's a good lesson here, I think, in the the lesson of the spies. And they make uh, a decision. And so then God makes a decision as well in verses 34 to 40. And he sends them back into the wilderness in verse 40. And then in verse 41 to 46, here is the danger of presumption. Presuming upon God's kindness. Because the people then say, oh, no, we've made a bad decision. We want to reverse our decision now, Lord. We want to go ahead and go in the land. And we'll go in whether you go with us or not. Is that a good idea? To go against 
what God has already said is going to happen? So you answered and said to me, verse 41, We sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up and fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. God doesn't want us to be defeated, have defeated testimonies, but I know lots of Christians that do have a defeated testimony, but they have a defeated testimony not because of God's lack of faithfulness, but because of the, their lack of wholly following the Lord. Right? So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen. But rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain on your own, in your own wisdom and in your own strength. You ever done that? <laughs> Made a decision and acted without consulting God or when you consulted God in prayer and you felt like he was saying, don't do this, don't do this. You went ahead and did it anyway. Well, welcome to the human race. You know, we, we all can be tempted to do that. And there are, there's fallout. There's consequences when we do that. And in this case, the Amorites who dwelt in the mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord wouldn't listen to your voice or give ear to you. So there was a price to pay, wasn't there? It's a serious thing to rebel against the Lord of the universe. It's serious to get ahead of him and presume that he will go ahead and take care of it anyway. He might do that. And I believe in Joshua chapter 2, that's what he does do. He's kind to them and lets them do it. But... He didn't command them to send spies in Joshua chapter 2. We looked at that Wednesday night. They made that decision. It seemed like a rational thing to do. And it seemed like I'm, you know, Joshua had a little bit of amnesia. Maybe he didn't remember what happened before when they did that and how disastrous it was. There were, there were hundreds of lives, thousands of lives that died in the wilderness that didn't go into the promised land because of that decision. And it's a sad thing, you know, when you and I get ahead of God and act presumptuously, if people die because of that or go to the bad place, hell in judgment because of our bad decisions, that's not good, is it? Does that make you happy? Does that make you feel fulfilled? It doesn't make me feel fulfilled. It would make me feel terrible. But that could happen to you or me. And so that's why these warnings are in the Bible, right? But we still have to act on them. We might know the warning, but if we don't act on them, what good is it? Just head knowledge. <laughs> Just theory we can bicker about and argue about. No, no, we, we should act on it, right? And then we see in Hebrews chapter 3, way up in the New Testament, I'll just read the verse unless, if you have time to turn to it. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 and 13. So important. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Beware, brethren, lest unbelief creep in and you doubt the 
truthfulness of God's word or the power of God to protect us or the wisdom of God to lead us. That is unbelief. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you, any of you be hardened through what? The deceitfulness of sin. And he'll go on to talk about in chapter 3 and 4, again as a reminder, for the fourth time in the Bible, he refers to this Numbers 13 incident with regard to the spies and the consequences, the fallout, okay? All right, that's, that's the incident in Joshua chapter 2. Now, if you'll go back to Numbers in chapter 32 this time, we were in Numbers 13, now we want to go to Numbers 32 near the end of the book, and we'll see the story here of the two and a half tribes. The two and a half tribes, they had a plan. They thought the land on the eastern side of the Jordan was suitable for them. Now, I won't take the time in to follow all the way through Genesis and Exodus, but you could do that with a concordance and just follow the land of Canaan. That Just follow the word Canaan in a concordance. You see every reference to it that God's promises to Abraham, to all three of the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, his promise always was for the land of Canaan. And the eastern border of that land was the Jordan River. But the two and a half tribes say, well, we see this land on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and we'd rather not cross the river. We want to just stay over here. So they went to Moses and said, Moses, give us land over here. That's the two and a half tribes that Joshua is dealing with at the end of chapter 1, right? And so we read in chapter 32 of Numbers, verse 1, Now the children of Reuben, children of Gad, had a very... This is, that's the two and a half tribes, those two and the half tribe of Manasseh, right? They had a great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and indeed the region was a place for livestock... They went and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priests and to the leaders of the congregation. And they say, the country the Lord defeated, verse 4, before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. Therefore, they said, verse 5, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. As we'll see, Lord willing, on Sunday morning, the Jordan crossing has enormous significance for them, but also for us as New Testament believers. And we'll see how important it is. And they say, well, we do not take us over this Jordan. God had already commanded the nation to cross the Jordan multiple times, and they heard it through Moses. So this is rebellion against the purposes of God, isn't it? They're saying, we've got a better idea than God. And Moses said to the children of Gad and Reuben, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? <laughs> they said, man, it's, we want easy street. 
Oh, we want to be saved, yeah, but we don't, want to, we don't want to fight for God. We don't want to have to be, you know, really in a difficult position for God. We don't want to be inconvenienced for God. We don't love Him like that. We just want to be saved and then live like the world, right? That was a decision they made. And Moses then says to him, Verse 7, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Why are you doing this? And then he reminds them. Now here we are in chapter 32, and he's going to remind them of what we just read in Numbers 13. He says, thus your fathers did when I sent them away to Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And when they went up to the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children so that they didn't go up into the land. And so the Lord's anger was aroused on that day and he swore an oath. Surely none of them meant. See, it's, he's repeating the whole story here. When the Holy Spirit repeats a whole story again, we should take notice, shouldn't we? He says, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. Not wholly followed. See, we saw that. And, and so then he warns them. In verse 14, and look, you've risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. But then they plead with him. I'll let you read the rest of the chapter. This is what I was talking about rationalizing on Wednesday night. They rationalize. They say, well, now, wait, Moses, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send our warriors over and cross the Jordan and help the people get their inheritance. And then we'll come back to our our allotment over here on the eastern side of the Jordan River. No problem. We'll do partly what you want. But then we're going to come back. But see, God wanted all of his people on the western side of the Jordan River. All of them. Two and a half tribes were over on the eastern side. So the people were split. Just like today. Some people think that it doesn't matter to God how Christians should gather. That the New Testament doesn't say anything about how Christians should gather. And so we can do whatever we want. Right? That's why you see so many different churches. One says we can do this way. One says we can do this way. And one says we can do this way. Does the Bible not have any instructions about what Christians are to do? And how we're to gather after we're saved? No, the answer is yes. The Bible has abundant instruction. And we should want to know that. If we're wholly following God, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? You want to please the Lord? You want to be useful for Him? You want your life to be a waste? Well, we could look at several passages in the book of Judges which reveal how those two and a half tribes really suffered because they were out there with no protection. You see, the Jordan River is a natural wall, if you will, a barrier on the eastern side of the territory. You had the Sea of Galilee and Jordan River and the Salt Sea. That whole eastern side was protected, but they were on the other side. 
They were east of it and vulnerable to the Ammonites who also lived over there, to the Moabites who also lived over there, to the Edomites who also lived over there, and to the Midianites who also lived over there. And you read in the book of Judges, all four of those countries attacked Israel. And if they attacked Israel and came in across the Jordan River, what territory would they have to go through first? Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. <laughs> and each time we read about it, well, the Midianites came in and oppressed Israel, right? And then the Ammonites came and they oppressed Israel. They had to cross through the territory of the two and a half tribes to do it. Now, we don't know. The text of the Bible is silent. We don't know if the two and a half tribes made a treaty with them, which they weren't supposed to do, and let them cross, or if they tried to fight them and... These other nations defeated them? We don't know. But we know that they were in a place of vulnerability and God had a place of protection for them. Are you with me? Do you see the spiritual teaching for us here in the church, in the church age? The Bible's a protection for us. There's a great statement on it in first chronicles now first and second chronicles work together and in chapter 5 we won't turn there tonight but you get a chance to look at it in first chronicles chapter 5 the lord in one chapter shows the history of the two and a half tribes they were the first to go into captivity and that chapter ends with saying they went off into captivity and the king of Assyria took them to, they name a few places where they took them, and they're there to this day, it says. But I want to conclude tonight in Deuteronomy chapter 11. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, I want you to see this with your own eyes if you can. This is a chapter, if you, if you ever want to think about a chapter, that's in, some of us aren't, aren't that good at memorization, and I'm not either. It's a struggle. But if, you, if you're inclined to memorize an entire chapter, I would highly recommend chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. This is so important. What it teaches is so revealing. Now, this is Moses. Again, he's teaching the children of Israel before they cross into the land. And, of course, chapter 12 begins the detailed laws and regulations that they would live under in the land. So this is part of the, the introduction. He says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments. In other words, the word of God. How often? What's the last word? Always. You shall keep. But you do that because you love the Lord. See, you love him first. And because you love him, you want to do his word. Right? And then he'll go on to say, to remind them of, how, of God's greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his faithfulness, the signs, the miracles he did. And then he'll say in verse 8, Therefore you shall keep every commandment which I command you today. So it's kind of re-saying re the same thing of verse 1, isn't he? You shall love and keep the word. Here he's saying you shall... Keep the word. And he says, what will happen if you do? That you may be strong and go and possess the land. Exactly what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 is said by Moses to the entire people in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Almost word for word the same. 
And then verse 13 again, and it shall be if you earnestly obey the word of God, my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will give you the rain and so forth. In other words, I will bless you with the experience of the spiritual blessings I've already given to you. In Ephesians chapter 1. Right? That's three times so far in this chapter that he's reminded them to keep, to do, to observe, to guard the word of God. See? And then again in verse 22. For if you carefully keep all these commands, Fourth time in one chapter. See, he's telling them this before he gives them the commandments. He reminds them, if you carefully keep them. He says, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to hold fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. You will have a victorious testimony A fruitful testimony, a life of usefulness for him. Did you notice there were if-then statements there? So God says that we have a responsibility, doesn't he? He wants to bring us into the place of usefulness. He wants us to love him. The question is, do we love him? And will we avail ourselves of what he wants to do in us? That's up to you. And I pray that you will have a heart tonight that wholly follows the Lord. Like Joshua. Like Caleb. Doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. But we'll make a lot fewer mistakes then if we try to do things in our own wisdom, apart from the will of God, trust Him. Trust Him. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, again for this time together. We thank You for each person that's here. We think particularly these young people were so thankful that they're here under the sound of Your Word, that they form bonds and relationships with one another. They sing so well. We appreciate Matt and the singing we did earlier, Lord. And I know that was from the heart. Those were great hymns that remind us of that. And Lord, help us to take these things seriously, including myself. Sometimes we can teach these things and still forget them. We need to put these things in our minds as frontlets between our eyes, as he says, and do them joyfully, happily. Because we love you for first loving us. Be with us as we go on. Give us home. Get us home safely, each one of us. Thank you again for your great goodness to us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.